Shalom, Mishpocha. Welcome to this Kadima podcast, Learning to End Well. Not every leader finishes well. In a study done several years ago by Dr. J. Robert Clinton, which he polled over 1,500 kingdom leaders and followers of Messiah Yeshua through history, stunningly, listen to this number, stunningly, only one in three leaders finish well. That is a sobering statistic. Compare this with numerous internationally known leaders, evangelists, apologetics, and mega church pastors, we see that this figure might even be worse. Yet it doesn't have to be this way. There's always time for change. Paul Shaul said in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8, For as me, I'm already being poured out on the altar. Yes, the time for my departure has arrived. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And all that awaits me now is the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on the day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for him to appear. Shaul's comments to Timothy at the end of this day reveal that finishing well is something we need to achieve, whether in kingdom service or in the secular realm. Saul gives three areas. He fought the good fight, he finished the race, and he kept the faith. In light of Dr. Clinton's study, All leaders must ponder this question. Am I running a good race? Am I fighting a good fight? And will I finish the race? This centers upon our obedience to God's word. Hosea 4 verse 6 says, My people are destroyed for want of knowledge. Because you rejected knowledge, I will also reject you as Cohen for me. Because you have forgot the Torah of your God, I will also forget your children. Let's look at some biblical characters who had a profound impact for the kingdom, but didn't end well. Today, those who for various reasons scuttled their glorious kingdom destiny by not obeying the word. Those who forgot the Torah, those who are destroyed for one of knowledge, experiencing the wrath and judgment of Adonai. All these examples are here to teach us how to avoid such mistakes and shortcomings and end well. Michal, David's wife and Saul's daughter, after David brought the ark back and danced before it. In 2 Samuel 6, starting at verse 20, when David returned to bless his household, Michal, the daughter of Shaul, came out to meet him and said, Such honor the king of Israel earned for himself today, exposing himself before his servants, slave girls, like some vulgar exhibitionist. David answered Michal, In the presence of Adonai, who chose me over your father and over everyone in his family to make me chief over Adonai's people, over Israel, I will make myself still more contemptible than that, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But those slave girls you mentioned will honor me. Michal, the daughter of Shaul, remained childless until the day she died. Now think about this. Michal was King Saul's daughter, who gave her to be David's wife for 200 Philistine foreskins. Now let's pause here for a moment for a point that's not normally discussed in this passage. Michal had a divine, supernatural destiny. As David's first wife... She would have birthed the heir to the throne of Israel that could have partially restored her father Shaul's royal dynasty. Michal lost that opportunity with her caustic, judgmental attitude over David's free-worshipping Adonai before the ark, where he danced and praised God to honor and worship him. Michal mocked David. She had contempt for him. David replies, I'll celebrate in the presence of Adonai. And as a result of mocking God's anointed, he shut her womb. She remained barren her entire life. Michal lost her supernatural destiny and calling because she was too busy mocking her husband 
we should have been by his side, praising and dancing before God with him. Michal not only lost the opportunity of giving birth to the next king, but she also failed to help restore the royalty of her father's house. The next example is Jezebel. 2 Kings 9, starting at verse 30, and this is about Jehu. It says, when Jehu reached Israel, Jezreel, and Jezebel heard of it, she put on eye makeup, she fixed her hair, and she looked out the window. And as Jehu came through the city gate, she asked, are you here in peace, you Zimri, you murderer of your master? Looking up at the window, he said, who is on my side? Who? Two or three officers looked out toward him. He said, throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splashed onto the wall and the horses, and she was trampled underfoot. He went in and ate, drank, then said, deal with this accursed woman, bury her, because she's a king's daughter. They who went to bury her, but found no more than of her than her skull, feet, and hands. So they came back and told him, and he said, this is what Adonai said through his servant Eliyahu from Tishbe. In the fields of Jezreel, the dogs will eat the flesh of Jezebel. Jezebel's corpse in the field of Jezreel will be like dung on the ground, unrecognizable as Jezebel. Jezebel was the wife of Ahab, who was king of Israel, the northern kingdom, from about 871 B.C. to 852 B.C. She was a daughter of Ethbaal, the king of Sidon. Jezebel worshipped a pagan god called Baal, and she helped to corrupt Israel with idol worship. Jezebel was evil and very influential. It was actually this spirit operating through Queen Jezebel, which had caused over 10 million Israelis, all but 7,000 faithful souls, to bow their knee to Baal. Jezebel caused them to forsake the covenant, to destroy the sacred altars, to kill the prophets and worship Baal, 1 Kings 19. Jezebel also introduced the worship of the goddess Ashtaroth to Israel. This goddess, represented in Canaanite culture by the moon, was a power-hungry goddess of love and sensuality. Jezebel was raised in this culture, where sensuality and sexuality were path to power and influence. Jezebel is represented in the same scriptures as a whore and a witch. This same spirit is at work today and growing stronger as we come closer to the return and arrival of the anti-Messiah. Sexual misconduct, impropriety combined with accusations is one of Jezebel's most common tools. Adonai brought judgment against her. He anointed Jehu to destroy her. She was thrown out of the window by several of her officers where the dogs ate her carcass, fulfilling Adonai's judgment. Jezebel ruined her life through false worship, prostitution, idolatry, and murder. She refused to submit and serve Adonai, the God of her husband, and walk in his ways, and she died because of it. And then Jehu himself. Jehu was anointed to be king over Israel and was commanded by Adonai to slay Jezebel. Jehu does so then slays all of Ahab's family. Then Jehu proclaimed a solemn assembly for Baal, and they did so. Jehu went throughout all Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not one man left that didn't come. And they entered the temple of Baal, and the temple of Baal was filled from one end to the other. Jehu left 80 men outside, and as soon as the priests of Baal offered the sacrifice, they slaughtered every last Baal priest and worshiper. He destroyed their temple, thus ending Baal worship in Israel. However, despite his zeal and all this, Jehu didn't end well. In 2 Kings 10, starting at verse 29, however, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, with which he had led Israel into sin, the gold calves that were at Bethel and Dan. Adonai said to Jehu, because you did well in accomplishing what is right from my perspective, 
and have done to the house of Ahab everything that was in my heart. Your descendants down to the fourth generation will sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu made no effort to live wholeheartedly according to the Torah of Adonai, the God of Israel, and did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam with which he had led Israel into sin. It was during that period that Adonai began to disember Israel. Hazael attacked them throughout the territory of Israel. He was still involved in the sins of Jeroboam. Therefore, Adonai began to dismember Israel bit by bit. Jehu was a profound authority, a man of God. He did exactly what he told him to do, but he couldn't depart from the sins of Jeroboam and live wholeheartedly before Adonai. We've got a New Testament example here with Ananias and Sapphira. In Acts 5, starting at verse 1, but there was a man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. And with his wife's knowledge, withheld some of the proceeds for himself, although he did bring the rest to the emissaries. Then Cephas said, Why has the adversary so filled your heart that you lie to the Ruach HaKodesh and keep back some of the money you received for the land? Before you sold it, the property was yours. And after you sold it, the money was yours to use as you pleased. So what made you decide to do such a thing? You have lied not to human beings, but to God. And on hearing these words, Hananiah fell down dead, and everyone who heard about it was terrified. The young men got up, wrapped his body in a shroud, and carried him out and buried him. Some three hours later, his wife came in, unaware of what had happened. And Kepha challenged her, tell me, is it true that you sold the land for such and such a price? Yes, she answered, that is what we were paid for it. But Kepha came back at her, then why did you people plot to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the men who carried your husband are at the door, and they'll carry you out too. Instantly, she collapsed at his feet and died. The young men entered, found her there dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. And as a result of this, great fear came over the whole Messianic community, and indeed over everyone who heard about it. See, the Talmudim shared everything among themselves. After that supernatural Shavuot outpouring, all the many believers were in one heart and soul, and no one claimed any of his possessions for himself, but everyone shared everything he had, as stated in Acts 4, verse 32. Everyone shared what they had among themselves to sustain them and help the movement grow. Hananiah and his wife, Sapphira, were part of these believers. They sold a portion of the land, but yet decided to hide part of the proceeds and lied about it, even though they made a commitment to give it all to the Lord. They made a vow to Adonai through the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. This led to their death and the end of their supernatural destiny and calling in the kingdom of God. They lied to Adonai and to the Holy Spirit, and it cost them their life. The Bible says, any sin we commit against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. Hananiah and his wife, Shafira didn't need to lie. The money was theirs, and they could have just brought in what they could afford to give. Rather, they vowed to give it all, then they lied about what they did give. There's a profound lesson here about what we tell God when we give and tithe. Lying is a sin that can render the destiny of a person useless. Now let's look at the sons of Eli. 1 Samuel 2, starting at verse 12, Eli's sons were scoundrels who had no regard for Adonai. The rule these Kohenim followed in dealing with people was that when anyone offered a sacrifice, the Kohen's servants would come while the meat was stewing with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would stick it in the pan, the kettle, the cauldron, or pot, and the Kohen would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how they dealt with all the people of Israel who came there to Shiloh. The Kohen servants would actually come before the fat burned to smoke and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the Kohen the meat he can roast because he doesn't want your meat stewed but raw. If the man answered, first let the fat burn to smoke, then take as much as you want, he would say, no, give it to me now or I'll take it by force. 
The sin of these young men was very serious in Adonai's view because they treated offerings made to Adonai with contempt. See, Eli is the high priest and the prophet in Israel who followed all the ways of the living God of Israel. As was required by Torah, when he was old, his sons Hophni and Pinchas were destined to become the high priests and minister unto God and the people of Israel, replacing Eli. They had a glorious, profound destiny and one of the highest callings possible in the kingdom. Yet Hophni and Pinchas were evil. They didn't obey Adonai or his ways. In fact, they used their position to steal from Adonai and act sexually immoral. They went about sleeping with all the women who served in the temple. This angered Adonai, and he dealt with them. In 1 Samuel 2, starting at verse 30, Therefore Adonai, the God of Israel, says, I did indeed say that your family and your father's family would walk in my presence forever. But now Adonai says, forget it. I respect those who respect me, but those who despise me will meet with contempt. The day is coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's family so that no one in your family will live to old age. At a time when Israel is prospering, you will see a rival in my dwelling, and never will anyone in your family live to old age. Still, I won't cut off every one of your men from my altar, because that would make your eyes grow dim and you would waste away. Nevertheless, all your descendants will die young. Your sign will be this will occur, will be what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Pincus. They will both die on the same day. Incredibly, and I really find this stunning, Eli responds, It is Adonai, let him do what seems good to him, in 1 Samuel 3, verse 18. He has no remorse, no conviction, and does nothing to correct his sons. This same apathy, complacency, and disregard is very prevalent in the greater body of Messiah today. Eli and his sons all lost their lives on the same day, ending the reign of the high priest and the prophet from their family. Treating the things of God with contempt and acting immoral results in the wrath and judgment of God. These are behaviors that must be avoided at all costs because they ruin your supernatural divine calling and destiny. Now let's look at King Saul in 1 Samuel 15, starting at verse 8. He took Agai, the king of Amalek, alive, but he completely destroyed the people, putting them to the sword. However, Saul and the people spared Agag, along with the best of the sheep and cattle, and even the second best, and also the lambs and everything that was good. They weren't inclined to destroy all these things, but everything that was worthless or weak, they completely destroyed. Then the word of Adonai came to Samuel. I regret setting up Saul as king because he has turned back from the following me and hasn't obeyed my orders. This made Samuel very sad so that he cried to Adonai all night. Samuel got up early in the morning to meet Saul. However, Samuel was told Saul came to Carmel to set up a monument for himself there, but now he is left and is on his way down to Gilgal. Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, May Adonai bless you, I have done what Adonai ordered. But Samuel answered, If so, why do I hear sheep bleeding and cows mooing? And Saul said, They brought them from the Amalekite because the people spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to Adonai, your God, but we completely destroyed the rest. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I'm going to tell you what Adonai said to me last night. He said, Speak. Samuel then said, You may be small in your own sight, but you're head of the tribes of Israel. Adonai anointed you king over Israel. Now Adonai sent you on a mission and told you, Go and completely destroy Amalek, those sinners. Keep making war on them until they've been exterminated. Why did you seize the spoil instead of paying attention to what Adonai said? From Adonai's viewpoint, you have done an evil thing. Saul said to Samuel, I did too pay attention to what Adonai said, and I carried out the mission of which Adonai sent me. I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and I completely destroyed Amalek. But the people took some of the spoil, the best of the sheep and cattle, set aside for destruction to sacrifice to Adonai your God 
in Gilgal. I'm going to pause here. It's funny. He doesn't say our God. He's saying to Samuel, your God. Samuel said, does Adonai take as much pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying what Adonai says? Surely obeying is better than sacrifice and heeding orders than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of sorcery, witchcraft, stubbornness like the crime of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Adonai, he too has rejected you as king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the order of Adonai and your words too, because I was afraid of the people and listened to what they said. Now, please pardon my sin and come back with me so that I can worship Adonai. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not go back with you because you have rejected the word of Adonai and Adonai has rejected you as king over Israel. Saul was the first king of Israel after Israel cried out to Samuel to have a king over them like the nations around them. This ended the reign of judges over Israel with Adonai as their king. Saul had a severe character fault. He just couldn't submit and obey. Saul lost the throne because of his disobedience of God's instructions to kill all the Amalekites and all their livestock. Saul desired to please the people because his troops were leaving. So he took rams from the Amalekites that he was to completely destroy and sacrificed them into Adonai. This incurred God's wrath and judgment. Samuel didn't, on his behalf, plead in verse 25, but Adonai didn't listen because he had already rejected him because of his rebellion. As children of God, we must engage in immediate obedience and compliance to all of Adonai's instructions, commands, and mitzvahs. If we don't, we incur the wrath and judgment of God. We see in all these examples that those who didn't end well in the Bible were caused as a result of a lack of knowledge, disobedience, apathy, complacency, rebellion, lying to the Holy Spirit, and to Adonai. We must shema, we must always listen to pay Adonai, to the voice of God, and shema, listen and obey, because he is the one who gives us our calling and our destiny. Adonai is the only one to direct and guide us to his completion. Finishing well is key to good leadership and inherent in great leaders. Any leader or business owner or ministry leader will tell you that a project or for clergy's messages are most successful and most impactful when you have a strong opening and even stronger, more powerful ending, and you put those two as close together as possible. Great leaders don't just work harder in the beginning. They have a powerful, strong finish. Great leaders are concerned about how their ending and how their egress will affect the overall organization or the project. And in other words, it's not about them. It's about the well-being of the organization and its people. As I've shared previously, all that we do here in Congregation Zionsig is done through the optics of the congregate and the congregation. There's five steps to finishing well. Number one, remember why you started in the first place. Divine calling, your business idea, whatever your leading was, one never starts planning to fail. Don't end that way. Face difficulties with issues with great resolve. Let your determination to lead well overshadow your temptation to hide under a rock. Determine to do things right as you possibly can. Sometimes it's about choosing the lesser evil. Choose well. We choose here to work in a spirit of excellence. Do we get it right every time? Absolutely not. But we strive for that spirit of excellence because God deserves our very best and nothing less. Don't let anyone ever put you down or put you on the mat. Hurting people hurt people. Know that what they are doing to you is a result of their own pain. Try to love them through it. Profusely thank people who've helped you along the way. Someone sacrificed for your success. Celebrate the victories. Even if it feels like the end was a failure, there were victors throughout the journey. Speak of them often and with a smile on your face. Listen, and I've started doing this recently. I didn't used to do this. I used to never look back, but always striving forward, as Paul says. But once in a while, we have to pause 
and understand exactly the impact we've made in our communities. One of our greatest victories here at Congregation Zion's sake is when we took a stand against the Nazis that came to march at Surrender Field in Yorktown. And uh, we had a rousing success. That was a profound victory and was one of the most striking moments for a congregation that really can yield us together in unity with a common purpose. Very powerful. Great leaders finish well. Throughout their time, they retain a teachable, responsive, humble, and obedient spirit. Those who finish well maintain an ongoing learning posture through the seasons of their lives. Humility and responsiveness and obedience are the keys to maintaining a teachable spirit. Obedience is the application of biblical faith in that which is not seen and that which is not yet. As we mature in Yeshua, we learn to trust God's character and promises in spite of ambiguity or trials. Believers who finish well are marked by ongoing outreach and sacrificial ministry for the good of other people. Those who squander the resources, gifts, experiences, and hard-learned insights God has given them, no longer investing them in the lives of others, soon wither and withdraw. What does it take to finish well? How can we run in such a way that we can say with Shaul, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith? He's not implying that there has not been mistakes or times of discouragement. Of course there has been. But through all of the problems and trials, Shaul Paul stayed in the race and ended well. I want to encourage you today to fight the good fight, finish the course, and keep the faith. End well, Mishpocha, and the Lord will bless you and keep you. Shalom. Shalom.